Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Dan Davis. I'm a professor of immunology at the University of Manchester. I wrote a book called The Compatibility Gene. Wonderful to have here today Magdalena Zanitska Gutz, who uh, has done unbelievably profound and important science that we're going to hear about today. Her father was a neuroscientist, and she initially dreamt of following in his footsteps. But at the age of 19, she attended an embryology lecture, which left her enchanted by, quote, the powerful beauty of our embryos. She was determined to study that topic more. She did her PhD at the University of Warsaw, Poland, and came to Cambridge in 1995, where she's remained ever since, becoming a professor there in 2010. She wants to understand nothing less than how life begins, to understand the early development of embryos, and then to use this knowledge for human health. She has made numerous major discoveries that relate to how embryos develop, including how embryos can correct things that go wrong during the earliest stages of human life, and in 2016, she reported a way to grow human embryos in her lab for just under two weeks. Previously, you could only grow embryos for uh, around one week, and she doubled that towards the limit of two weeks that's legally allowed. And this was voted by readers of Science magazine as the breakthrough of the year across all of science, because it opens up new ways of studying this vital phase of human development, the very beginning of human life. Today, her lab is quite simply a powerhouse of activity in all kinds of areas relating to the different aspects of how humans develop. She's funded with over five million, uh, four, at least four million pounds from the Wellcome Trust and the European Research Council. Uh, and it's just wonderful that I think the Hay Festival can put this on. Uh, uh, this is a bona fide, fantastic scientist that we're going to uh, hear from today. Uh, and it's sponsored by the University of Cambridge. Please welcome to the stage for the first time at the Hay Festival, Magdalena zanitska Gutz. Um, thank you very much for coming and this quite overwhelming introduction that Dan uh, gave you of me and I only hope that I can, I can um, grow to this occasion and tell you some of the interesting stories which you might find out actually relate to, to the beginning of our life, we, the phase of our life every single of us went through when we were still in the body of our mother. So I would like to start by showing you uh, this uh, painting, which is one of my favorite paintings of Klimt. And this is one of my favorite paintings because it shows the secret of the beginning of the life. So it shows the golden sperm of Zeus showering of a Danes eggs, shown here on Danes coat, and making them develop into embryos that we call blastoses, which you can just see here on the Granes coat. And you'll be able to see that those embryos are much more beautiful than Klimt could have predicted 300 years ago. But it's also quite incredible that 100 years ago, embryos that at that stage of our life have only 100 microns have been spotted by Klimt and empowered by putting them on the blanket of um, coat of Dana. So now you can see how those embryos we know look like 100 years later. So this is the same embryo, which you can see here, going away at the so-called blastocyst stage. And 
I think, and I hope you would agree at the end of this talk, that this is one of the most beautiful stages of our life. So we all looked like that when we were seven days old. And I think it is so beautiful because it's so simple. And yet, it holds three secrets of our life that I would like to talk today about, that we devoted the last few years on trying to understand. So one of those secrets, so three secrets, so one of the secrets I call as self-aid decisions. So this is um, um, a journey from the fertilized egg, as you can imagine at the bottom of that blanket, towards the blastocyst stage through the first seven days of our life. And this journey is about how to decide fate of each individual cell in the embryo. So when the cells are born, they are naive, they do not have any preconceptions, they do not know what they should become to be. So how do they decide their fate? To make one of the three types of cells shown here in the blastocyst. So those cells in yellow are the ones which are most magical, most incredible. They are the cells that will make every single cell of the future body. And those cells that surround them in blue and pink they are so-called extra embryonic cells, so outside the embryo, and they are the cells that will make placenta, that will be able to connect the baby with the body of the mother, and yolk sac, this is kind of sac within which embryo will develop. And they are actually the cells, these pink and blue cells, they are the ones which will tell the yellow cells what to become. So I will tell you first about how we recently found when and for the first time and how those cells become different from each other to generate these first three types of cells in our life. So whenever I talk about self-fate and destiny, I have to remember that, that those, uh, to mention that those early self-fate decisions are extremely plastic, meaning flexible. And this is really the question um, which puzzles scientists for the last 50, 60 years since we discovered this plasticity how it is that our cells can change their fate, despite that they invest in one path, how we can turn them into something else. This is this huge tolerance that cells in our body don't have. Our cells, we don't want to change their fate because this is when we develop cancer. And I would like to tell you about my favorite model about, uh, that teaches us about this plasticity that was inspired by, um, and by a tiny little embryo several years ago, that now is my son, and here is in the audience. So I would like to tell you how my own life history inspired me to develop this uh, particular model for studying plasticity. So these are the very first two secrets, and the third one has been the most enigmatic secret in our life, and this related it, it's related to what happens beyond the blastocyst stage. So you might not know, but um, I'll tell you now that the fact is that we were able to study human embryo life for the first week of human embryo life. But beyond that, these human embryos could not develop outside the body of the mother. And this is the time when the major defects happen during our own pregnancy. So we'd like to open this black box of development, and very recently we succeeded so I would like to show you the very first human embryos developing outside the body of the mother and what we have learned by studying those embryos until so-called day 14. This is the time when legally we are not allowed to culture human embryos. 
Okay, so I would like to start with the sulfate specification. And essentially, this is the question how we can develop from something as simple and let's say insignificant, my pointer doesn't work, but I hope you can see this gray egg on the left, to something as complicated and as beautiful as ourselves. So how can it happen? So in Medi... Oh. In many model organisms, it happens because when the new cells are born, they are inheriting instruction from the mother cell, the egg. And this is so uh, in Drosophila embryos, the, the fruit fly, which you see on the top, in the frog embryos, which you see in the middle, and also in C. elegans embryos, which are simple worms. So in all of those organisms that many scientists study, we know that sulfate decision is dictated by the what particular cell inherits from the mother. So if you imagine one big egg, and if you chop it into smaller and smaller fragments, each single cell will inherit part of that egg. And often this part of the egg has address to where the cell could travel, should travel. So a destiny is the sign and the time of the conception of that particular cell. But this is not so in our embryos. So this was a puzzle how it can be that our embryos, so human embryos, and also mouse embryos, which we often use as a simpler model system, which actually develop in a very similar way that human embryos, can decide the fate of their cells. So we knew that it is not as simple as in other organisms due to the experiments that were carried out in the 60s, and I would like to show you an example of them. So you can take two-cell stage embryo. Now again, I don't have the pointer or maybe you can just see my red spot. So you can take two-cell stage embryo and separate this two-cell stage embryo into individual cells and take one of those cells, and it's incredible that this cell can give rise to the whole organism. But what was very puzzling is that if you separate this two-cell stage embryo into two individual cells, only one of them gives rise to the mouse, in this case, and the second one will fail in development, will die. So it is possible, although it was not interpreted at that time in this way, that already at the two-cell stage, in the embryo which have just two cells, there is some segregation of sulfate. But it was not thought that would be the case, because if you now take four-cell stage embryos, so one, two, three, four cells, and separate them from each other, none of those cells can give rise to the to the mature organism. And this is the same in mouse as it is, would be the same in human. But those embryos still have so-called plasticity, because if you can take two different types of four-cell stage embryos and put them in so-called chimera, they would develop in one single organism. My husband said it looks like mouse with the measles. I, I just wanted to make sure you don't interpret it this way as he. I think he wanted to embarrassed me that I don't know how to write or draw chimeras. Uh, this is the chimeric mouse in which some of the cells can are der derived from the red clone and some of the cells are derived from the white clone. So these are those classical experiments that led to the belief that our embryos develop very differently than embryos of all other organisms, simpler organisms that we have studied in the laboratories. And this really raised the question, how those cells, therefore, acquire that fate. 
if they are so flexible, they can generate one single organism by putting embryos together, maybe they're identical to each other. And this is really what was the common interpretation of these results, that those cells at the time are identical, and therefore it doesn't matter how we organize them, because they will be naive and therefore will adopt the fate according to circumstances. So essentially, if we think about it, I would like to make analogy to the very famous book of George Orwell, Animal Farm, because this is exactly what had happened in this book. So when those animals on the farm get rid of the master, <coughs> they all think they're equal. And as you know, at the end of the book, there are pigs that become the masters of all the rest of the animal on the farm. So there are two possibilities that will drive pig to be the masters. One, that it happens at random. So if the animals are truly equal, it should be purely by chance that pig will become the master. And another possibility is that pig are a little bit more clever than the rest of the animals and become the masters. But if we were to have swine flu, which will eliminate the pigs, then the other animal in that set of animals can be again more fitted to become the leader and will become the leader. So this is really the question which we wanted to address very soon after I set up my lab, nearly 18 years ago. The dogma at the time was that all of those animals, cells within the embryo, are the same. And we wanted to truly understand whether this dogma is true. And we wanted to understand it not because, of the, not because we were very clever and we thought maybe it's not as simple as that, but because some of the first experiments that I did here suggested that the situation might be more complex than that. And here is one of those experiments. So the question is, are all cells truly identical? So the first thing that we did, we started to follow cells in their normal development. So we set up a way that we can film developing embryos for the first few days of their life continuously. And we were only able to do it because those embryos can be cultured in a simple dish. And here is one example of such an embryo cultured here. And through this time-lapse, we call them time-lapse studies, in this particular case, we use transgenic line of embryos in which we can label some cells green and some red. In other cases, you can just paint those cells. So very simple experiments. But you have to do it in a way that does not disturb embryo. As embryo, as I've mentioned to you at the beginning, is very flexible in its fate decisions at that stage. So all in all, when we carried out many of those experiments through many years in many different ways, it showed us that already at the four cell stage, the magic starts. Some of those cells at the four cell stage, I've shown them here in yellow, are more pluripotent. That means they would develop this ability, to, like a stem cell ability, to give rise to all of the cells of the future body. We call it pluripotency. So some of those cells are more pluripotent and give rise to this inside compartment of the embryo that we call epiblast, where our body will arise. While other cells lose this ability and generate the placenta, the lineage that will generate placenta. So this was unbelievable. I would tell you nobody wanted to believe us when we first proposed it, because it was based on simple lineage tracing studies. And even, I have to admit, I didn't believe it at first. So we carry on these experiments in many different ways. And finally, we sort of had to admit to the truth, those cells are truly not identical. 
So if they are not identical at the time, and the embryo as a whole have this flexibility, are those differences truly important? And to be able to address this question, we decided to make embryos artificially composed of the same type of cells. So either those pluripotent cells, or and that will make the body, or embryos that are made of those cells that are biased to contribute to placenta. And this is what I'm showing here. So we took such a four-cell stage embryo, and by lineage tracing studies, again, I can't show it to you, but you may see the left here on the left top corner, there is the embryo in which uh, we had to first separate them from each other, and we do it through the micromanipulator. So you can see here, we are separating those individual cells. Here are four cells separated. And then we take the same type of cells from many different embryos and make those chimeras, because logistically it was not possible for us to reconstitute full embryos, so put four cells together, we put three cells together, but of the same sort. So we did three cells together here, we call it chimera of the time, same type of cell, and we found that this, if we put together those cells that give rise to those magical stem cells for future body, all of those embryos, nearly all, 85%, despite of all of those manipulations that we did with them at the beginning, they would develop into mice. If we took the red cells that are contributing to embryonic and extra-embryonic lineages, but more predisposed to contribute to placenta, they also develop, but only in 25% of the cases. But when we took together those green cells, the one which I've told you through tracking through making movies we knew will generate many placenta, all of those embryos died. So these experiments told us that it's not only just sulfate of those cells that start to differ, they actually differ in so-called developmental potential, what they become. But the issue still remained controversial because we couldn't propose at that time when we first saw it, around 10 years ago, mechanisms behind it. We couldn't understand why those cells become different from each other. And I wouldn't like to give you a feeling that we fully understand the answer to this question, but the last two years we've made a big progress because of the new technology that was developed that allow us to take each single cell and ask which genes the cell express. So here we have a fertilized egg and developing to this four-cell stage embryo, and now we take individual cells take so-called RNA, this is sort of the message that every single gene sends to make a protein. And then we change this RNA back to the DNA, which is how genes are normally looking in the cells, and make a library of each single cell. It's like a library of words, which each single cell has learned to tell us. And then we compare those libraries. And here's the result of that study. And I know that perhaps it looks a bit complex, and I am not going to go into any complexity of it, but I would like to show you one real graph that we scientists are getting in our lab very often. So this is the, this, all of these black and red dots below and above the green line show gene that is expressed, that means that is the word, in other words, spoken by every single cell at that stage, at four-cell stage. And through the computational analysis, we can look and identify those genes that are expressed, in other words, spoken on a higher level 
So they are shouted in comparison to be, sh to be silently spoken by other cells. So through that analysis, we can identify those genes that are expressed very differentially between the cells at the four-cell stage. And one of them was shouting to us most, most loudly, and this is called SOX21. So you, I'm sure you know, for those of you who are not scientists, that scientists speak, um, often give their, their very funny names to their genes. They are particularly the Drosophila scientists, they're allowed, fruit fly scientists, they're allowed to name their genes by giving them the names or their favorite pets or subject in life. Mouse and human embryologists, uh, geneticists, are not allowed. We have to give the boring names to our major discoveries. So unfortunately, this is just called SOX21. But the gene appeared to be very interesting because it was so differentially expressed between individual cells. And you can see here the cell 1, 2, 3, 4. And the SOX21 was in one cell expressed on a very high level, in another cell are hardly at all expressed, and moderate level and so-so level. So we pick up that gene, and there are many others. So actually all of those genes called the in red, they are the one differentially expressed. And we found that this gene belongs to the family of extremely important pluripotency factors, which are called OCT4 and SOX2. So these are the Yam so-called Yamanaka factors that if you take differentiated cell and add those genes and a few others, you can reprogram them to the naive state that they, co they can go back and generate many cells of the body. So it turned out that the SOX21 is the target of those very famous pluripotency genes. So we carried out many experiments on which I would like to show you the, my favorite one because it's very simple and very powerful. We took two cell stage embryo and enhanced the expression of this gene in just half of the embryo. So we generated competition between two cells at that stage of its life, one that have high level of SOX21 and one that have endogenous level of that gene, the one we can't control. And we labeled the cell with the red dye. And now we ask the question, what will happen to that cell versus the other cell? And we found that that cell now gives rise to placenta, not the future baby. So all in all, this generated that model of how we understand, at the moment, sulfate specification in mammalian embryos. And we use here mainly mouse embryos for those studies, as human embryos could not be studied, but most likely they uh, are developing very similarly. So we have fertilization events at the very, very beginning. Then we have embryo developing into two-cell stage. Both blastomers seem identical, but actually that's a big question, are truly are those cells truly identical? But we do know that at the four-cell stage, become, those cells become different. And they are different, that's how we represented chromatin, because in some of those cells, chromatin is, is we can say, looser, and in other cases, more dense. And they are looser, they, the chromatin become looser at the, at the space where these important pluripotency genes want to be expressed. And if they become expressed, SOX21 go high and generate a future baby-to-be. But if SOX21 become down-regulated, another master regulator become up-regulated, shown here in green, it's called CDX2, and this ensures that this cell will differentiate into trophectodem.
So this is what I wanted to tell you about sulfate specification today. So all in all, those studies shows that cells are not identical at the beginning of our life. They start to be different from each other much earlier than we believed before, already at the four cell stage. And those differences are important because they affect what the cells develop into. They guide cell fate. Okay, so when I started um, the talk, I've mentioned that we have the sulfate specification that we are so excited about because this helps us to understand how our cells become different from each other for the very first time. But I also mentioned that those early sulfate decisions are very flexible at the time. And this is not so in many other organisms. So this really inspires question of how it is that sulfate specification happens in such a ordered, always working fashion for the baby to be born normal. And yet, those early sulfate decisions can be flexible. And here I would like to tell you... <coughs> okay, so, sorry, I have forgotten about the slide. So mammalian embryos show plasticity. So there are three questions that we try to address right now in the lab. First, what are the mechanisms that underlie this plasticity? What are the limitations of this plasticity? And perhaps the most important question for today, is this plasticity used in normal development? And here I would like to tell you the favorite model we have right now in the lab to study this plasticity. And it is named after Simon, uh, who, was, um, who is my son. And we developed this model because when Simon was an embryo, uh, the genetic testic, testing that I underwent when I was two months pregnant with Simon, so Simon had two months, showed that many cells, nearly 30% of all of the cells in the placenta that connected Simon to my body were faulty. Where having particular type of trisomy of the chromosome number two, that's one of the biggest autosomes which we have in our body on which many genes sit. So the prognosis was worrying, as you can imagine, because I've just told you through going through sulfate specification that placenta and the baby come from the same embryo, come from the same egg. So it made me wonder what are the chances for Simon to be normal? And I realized by talking to geneticists and doctors that actually there was no very good model to understand to what happens to those abnormal cells when they appear very early in the embryo. So if cells in the placenta become abnormal, then of course this abnormality does not touch the embryo. But if the cells become abnormal within the embryo at the early stages, which this study suggested because as many as 30% of the cells have the same abnormality, what actually happened to those cells? So this was not just a matter of my own pregnancy because actually I became aware that this so-called embryonic chromosome instability is a very well-known factor responsible 
for low human fecundity, for low success rate of IVF, and also for generation of twins that might actually look not identical, despite they are coming from the single egg. In fact, at the time it was shocking to me, I didn't realize, but I found out by talking to people working in IVF clinics with human embryos directly, that actually many human embryos are mosaic, and it means that they do contain one or more of abnormal cells. And this is shown here by showing these red cells, which have some abnormality, but they can be also red and blue cells that have another type of abnormality. So the question was, what will happen? So that was the question in my mind at the time when I was still pregnant with Simon. What will happen to those abnormal cells? Are those abnormal cells aluminated? So if embryo is so flexible, so plastic, maybe this is how this plasticity is used, and those abnormal cells are going to be killed. So that's option I was hoping for. The second possibility would be also good that those cells are eliminated from the part of the embryo, this part here, um, again, okay, here, that will give rise to the future body of the embryo, but are tolerated in this part of the embryo that will give rise to placenta. And that's why those cells are often found in placenta, so it also would have been a good outcome. And the third possibility is that those cells are tolerated, and therefore many of those mosaic embryos will give rise to the babies which will have this abnormality. So to be able to model such a situation, we cannot study human embryos, because we cannot generate abnormal cells in human embryos. It would not be possible. So we have to study for that mouse embryos, and this is what I try to do. So I develop a, a way in the lab to induce this abnormality in some embryos, but not in the others. So I'm not going to any technical details of it, but I had eight cell stage embryos in which all of the cells were normal. So they were control cells, control embryos, control cells from control embryos. And then I had eight cell stage embryos, which I treated with particular drug that prevents cells from correcting themselves, correcting the number of chromosomes. So I would generate a lot of abnormalities. And then I took those abnormal cells, which on that slide are shown in red, and combined them with the normal cells to generate again chimera, as I showed you before, but now, this chimera have normal and abnormal cells side by side in a full competition. And I asked the question, what will happen to those normal and abnormal cells? And we asked this question in many different ways, but the first one, we used the technique that we developed for looking at the cell fate decisions in normal development, which is time-lapse studies. So I carried out movies in which the cells which are abnormal, I know were red. And here's an example of such a movie, not as a movie, but as a stills from movie, running through several time points. And this was amazing revelation to us, because we found that those abnormal cells undertake programmed cell death. In other words, they actually commit the suicide, but only in the part of the embryo that will give rise to the baby, but not in the part of the embryo that will give rise to the placenta that will connect that baby to the mother. So we knew it through many of those movies and quantifying the cells. And here you can see example of one red cell that undertake programmed cell death 
and the neighbor normal cell is actually engulfing those debris of the subnormal cells. So actually, normal cells will collect the wound that disappearance of that abnormal cells were left in the embryo. Okay. So if it is so, then we ask the question, how many abnormal cells we can have in our embryos that will be still eliminated at that stage by that mechanism? So we generate a different type of embryos. So here are control embryos. So we make chimeras of two control cells, and we saw that all of them develop into normal living mice. Now, we take embryos in which 50% of cells were abnormal. 50%. And 50% cells were normal. And amazingly, all of those embryos corrected itself after implantation. All of those abnormal cells were eliminated from the part of the embryo that will become the baby. So this is this outcome. And even more amazingly, when we have two-thirds of cells abnormal and only one-third of cells normal, still nearly 50%, 40% to be exact, of those embryos were normal. I mean, babies were normal from those embryos. So I think this is incredible, and it sort of convinced us that I think the first mechanism, to my knowledge, that we know is uh, the, first, um, the first example of the, um, in the literature we know of, of how embryos can correct themselves in their natural development. So I would say that despite of the sulfate decisions going on and starting so early on the second day of our life, when we are four cell stage or so, second or third, embryos can self-correct and abnormal cells will become eliminated by programmed cell death and normal cells will substitute the missing part of the embryo by perhaps dividing more to make sure that there is enough number of cells in the compartment that will make the future new organism. <coughs> so in the remaining time, in the remaining five, ten minutes, I would like to tell you about this third secret, which was the most difficult to approach. And I, this was the dream of mine for nearly all of my life, since I became a grown-up scientist. And this is to really go beyond this blastocyst stage of development, to understand how these three types of cells, this magical yellow cell and this blue and red cells that help the magical cells to establish their fate and make a baby, how those cells interact with each other to make this happen. And to be able to understand this, we would need to culture those embryos outside the body of the mother for a few days longer. And this wasn't possible. And this was so-called in the, in the textbooks, you will find this is referred to often as black box of implantation development. So this is the stage of our life that embryos are not any longer free-floating, but they become embedded within the body of the mother. They are invading the body of the mother. So, this is possible to address this question in human development due to the pioneering work that happened in 1969, was published in Nature by Bob Edwards, in which he showed for the very first time that human eggs can be fertilized in vitro. So this is the image from this iconic paper. So this is the human oocyte, human sperm, and the act of fertilization. 
And since then, we know that we can culture those embryos for this first six days of its life relatively easily. Those embryos at that time, they actually do not make, uh, they do not grow at all. They just divide into smaller and smaller cells. And I've told you how they acquire this blastocyst morphology. And finally, they will hatch out of the coat that is called zona pellucida. And this is the time when we lose the track of them, because they now want to go to the body of the mother, invade this body of the mother, to start to grow, to be nourished, and grow into the, in our case, into the new baby. So, the question, was, the question was at the time, can we develop a procedure that would allow human embryos to develop for the few days longer outside the body of the mother so that we can, for the first time, understand this dialogue between those different types of cells in the process of body formation. And this is the time when many pregnancies fail and many developmental defects arise. So how to do this? And it happened so that just two years ago, we published, we managed to set up the system and publish this paper that allow us to culture mouse embryos beyond implantation. It was equally black box for mouse embryo development. So we develop a method in which we can culture mouse embryo from the blastocyst stage to the stage when the body starts to form. It takes five days and we culture them in two different media. And I'm not going to any details, but you can see initially there is the process in which embryo don't do much. Finally, it will attach. And it, when it attaches, the signal is sent to the embryo that it can grow. <coughs> so this is really the first mouse embryo developing on a culture dish in the lab outside the so-called blastocyst stage. So can we now <laughs> translate this information from mouse, and as I just mentioned to you, this was a challenge to develop it for the mouse embryo into the human embryo. So why it is so important? So there are three reasons. First of all, implantation is one of the major causes of early pregnancy loss. And in fact, we know that IVF embryos fail to implant in 30 to 70% of the cases. This is the time that the body shape for the first time become established, and I've mentioned it to you, and the cell that will form the future organism become separated from the rest of the embryo. And we wish to understand how this process is regulated because it's absolutely key for the pregnancy to progress. And finally, because we are scientists, we are also interested in the secrets of life, and we knew that the implantation stage of development for all of those years was the most enigmatic and difficult stage of development that, uh, that was um, the, uh, of our own development that we couldn't study. So the question was, if we can culture mouse embryos outside the body of the mother, can we take now human embryos and use exactly the same procedure and they would self-organize, so develop without the help of maternal tissue at that stage. So this was really the first question. Do our babies at that time are actually entirely dependent of the body of the mother, or can they go on and develop without it? This is something which we didn't know. So can we take human embryos out of the black box? So I've mentioned to you that we used exactly the same protocol, and this is the human embryo on the left that you see a movie of, that initially is just the first two days is about attaching of this embryo to the Petri dish. 
And then as soon as it attaches, it starts to grow, which you see on the right. So it's all very nice. We saw that those embryos grow. This was not trivial <laughs> to achieve that, but we were extremely happy when we saw those first embryos growing to the day 13, 14. But how do we know that those embryos are actually normal? So we thought that if those embryos are normal, they should complete the five major steps that embryos complete, have to complete for the pregnancy to carry on uh, in, in vitro. And that's the first step. And this is separation of this magical population of stem cells that will make the body, called epiblast, marked by this gene, OCT4, this pluripotency factor I already mentioned, from the second group of cells shown here in green that will make the yolk sac, the, the sort of sac that, will em that embryo can grow in. And you can see that soon after implantation, these two lineages, these two groups of cells become indeed separated from each other. We couldn't study it in the mouse because in mouse this process happened in a different way and much earlier. In human embryos, this happened only after implantation. So this is segregation of the stem cells for future body from those stem cells that will make the yolk sac. The next step was to generate two different types of cells that will make placenta. And here they are. So there are some cells farther away from the body. They are multinucleated. So you can see here through this 3D reconstruction, they have new, many nuclei in one single cell and cells very close to the future body, which have only one nucleus. So despite that those embryos, those cells are not in the contact with the mother, they somehow know that they have, generate this, they have to generate those two types of, of placenta cells. The third <coughs> major event was formation of the tiny cavity that then will grow. And this is the cavity shown here. It's called preamniotic cavity. And here it's shown in this 3D reconstruction in red. So that's the cavity that pushed the cells away and will make a space for the cells to organize into the body. So this cavity forms. The fourth point, most unusual because it doesn't happen in mouse system, in mouse embryo model system, is to separation of these embryonic cells, these magical cells, OCT4 positive cells, into two groups of cells. Those will make the body, and they are shown here in blue, and those that will make the amnion. So this is the sulfate decision in the human embryo upon implantation. And we were very curious to see that actually this split in sulfate do happen after embryo implant. And the final key point was formation of the second cavity, so-called yoxac cavity. And here it is shown in blue. So also this process do happen in this morphogenesis in vitro in a dish. So this is my final slide, uh, how I would like to finish this uh, human embryo journey by showing you that all of these fe five features of human embryogenesis until day 13, 14, that legally we are not allowed to culture human embryos donated for research any further, can be accomplished in the in vitro and therefore are accessible for study. Okay, so why it is important to study human development at this stage. And my daughter reminded me that I should show you this slide because maybe not always it is so obvious. It's obvious to us uh, scientists because we think about it all the time, but it doesn't have to be obvious to everybody. So I wanted to remind you that 25 
percent of pregnancy fail within the first seven weeks. And actually, the spontaneous deaths account for nearly 70% of all of the embryos, largely due to the defects in development at the stages that we were not able to study. In fact, if you look at statistics, you will find out that worldwide, more than 300,000 newborns, and this is around 2,000 in UK, die within the first four weeks of birth. And this is due to the congenital abnormalities. And these are the abnormalities that happen exactly within this period of development that we can now study. So if we would like to save those lives, we really need to understand what happens at this stage of development, because from any cure, any prevention for developmental, from to provide any prevention of this developmental defect, to contribute to it, we first have to understand how embryo develop at the time. And we didn't have this understanding until now, and even now, we are only very much at the very beginning of providing this understanding. So this is really very important for development of the new organism. But also this study tells us how stem cells in our body decide their fate for the very first time, how to split bef between different paths they might be taking. And this is very important for driving stem cell differentiation in, in so-called regenerative medicine. Okay, so this is where we are. So until recently, we were able to study embryo development within this first week of our life. And now we are at that stage of our life and we have now understanding, the beginning of understanding what happened until the end of, or yes, until the day 14, uh, until the point that we can culture those embryos in vitro. And I already mentioned uh, why it is so important to have those studies carry on at that stage of our life. So I would like to finish by showing you the slide I started with uh, this painting of Klimt 100 years ago and this mystical stage of human development, blastocyst. You know that even Klimt didn't know how we <laughs> go from that stage onwards, so we couldn't have embryo beyond the blastocyst stage on, his, on, on, on Dana's blanket. And now I think, I hope very much, this will be uh, my Mm. This will be my hope that you will remember something from this lecture, how the structures is built and how important the structures is in generation of the new organism for the next few days beyond the blastocyst stage that happens. And finally, I would like to show everybody in my lab because um, I am not working on my own, so this is my team. And uh, today I talk about a work um, of several of members uh, of my team uh, whose names are shown in red, um, are very important collaborators. And uh, these studies, unfortunately, are not cheap, are expensive, and would never be possible without the funding from the Wellcome Trust, NERC, and some other uh, bodies that contribute uh, to funding research in our lab. So thank you very much for attention. I left, uh, I left 15 minutes for any questions that you might have, if I can answer them. Yeah. Yes, please. I 
wondering at what point does an embryo go from being a bunch of cells to uh, human life? Uh, how would this affect how far you would extend the law in allowing embryos to be uh, in a cell culture, a culture beyond 14 days? And would this affect laws on abortion as well? Yes. So that's a very important question. At which point this embryo become the new organism? So you can look at this problem in many different ways. But I will tell you the way which is, I think, most commonly regarded right now um, as the one of the sensible way of looking at it is this day 14 rule. So why people think about day 14 as a rule beyond which we cannot culture human embryos uh, in vitro? And this is because this is the time when so-called primitive streak forms and the cells start to move through that structure to develop different layers of our body. So if you think that developing different layers of our body or setting up foundation for different layers of our body is the beginning of new organism, you would think that's the time when we can start to think about new organism. But if you think that new organism starts only when we start to develop nervous system, as many of scientists think, then actually this happened much later. This will happen four on the fourth week of our pregnancy. So we are on the second week now, so we should be able to culture the embryos for uh, two more weeks to go to that stage when we initiate the process of nervous system formation. But even at that stage, the nervous system is not functional, would not feel pain. So it's very difficult to define where the boundary should be beyond which we should not go and culture human embryos beyond, beside, um, outside the body of the mother. But right now, this boundary exists on the, on the end of the second week of development or a process that is called gastrulation, initiation of that process. If you think about the beginning of life, of course, all sites is already beginning of life, even before it is fertilized. Fertilization is act of life. It's the first step stone to initiate a new life. So it's extremely, you raise a very good question. It's an extremely difficult question to, to address. And different cultures think about it differently. Thank you. Um, as I understand it, the majority of IVF cycles in the UF, US make use of a technique called PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening. Uh, it's increasingly being used in the UK as well. Previously, they used <coughs> to take a cell sample from around day three when there's a cluster of around eight cells. Now they take their samples from the placenta element of your blastocyst on day five. Now, from your studies, are uh, suggesting that actually they stand an extremely good chance of reject, rejecting embryos that could quite well go on to create uh, a perfectly viable um, child. Um, but it's still <coughs> promoted a lot. Uh, like I say, most cycles in the US, increasingly common in the UK. Um, secondly of all, do you see any chance that any of your attached embryos from day 14 could ever be transplanted back into um, the womb? So maybe I would deal with the question a number uh, first first. So indeed there are many ways of assessing viability of the embryo by taking individual cells at the four or eight cell stage of development, the stage of development that I dedicated first, first third of my talk today. And the question is, that if we take just one cell or two cells, as often in these diagnostic uh, procedures are taken, 
how would we know that this part of the embryo, if it is abnormal, will tell us that the rest of the embryo is abnormal? So that's a risk. We can't. What I wanted to say is that the embryos that do carry on and develop normally, despite of having abnormal cells, are mosaic embryos, are those embryos that have both normal and abnormal cells side by side. And often when those um, tests are carried out in IVF, they're carried out for patients who might fear of particular genetic disorder. And in this case, those uh, studies would be very informative because if you remove one cell and you find out that this embryo do have this disorder, this will be manifested in every single cell taken out of this embryo. So that's the study which on one hand is extremely informative for those parents who might be worrying about one particular or two particular disorder that might be running in their family. These tests will be very informative. But they might be not as informative for those uh, parents who will use those tests for preselecting which of those embryos should be returned to the body of the mother if they did not have any genetic disorders in their family. I'm not sure I express uh, this. Uh, that, that essentially, I tell you uh, it's a complex answer to a simple question, but there is no simple answer to your complex question. <laughs> um, thank you, first of all, for a wonderful, um, a wonderful lecture. Um, it took me back to my days as an undergraduate when I realized how many different errors are possible. It's amazing that any of us ever made it here. Um, you were talking about the way that within the, em within the developing embryo, within developing new baby, um, the cells would undergo programmed cell death if they detected an error. Are you suggesting that there's a possibility... Are you saying that a, pro a cell would allow itself to die and equivalent cells would carry on to developing that function? Or are you saying that the neighbouring cells could actually regress and go back and recreate that cell? Excellent question. I think you must be scientists asking that question because it's a, um, it's a, it's a question um, that often uh, puzzle scientists to which extent cell um, which know something happens, something happens, something wrong happens in the environment and, and she would react to it, would um, react passively and just proliferate maybe more to heal the wound and to which extent would regress in its development to substitute for the missing part. And I'm, we don't have an answer to that question, but my feeling would be that it would be first passive. So essentially it would be at that stage of life of that cell, it would be more the question of generating more cells, hoping that some of them will feel the wound, rather than regressing back to the earlier stages to recompensate for a particular type of cell. I just wanted to ask a question concerning the 14-day rule, which I've been very interested in. Does the fact that you can do something <coughs> mean that you should do it? And many years ago, when uh, it's about 35 years ago since the 14-day rule was put in place, um, by scientists all over the world, does it, should it be something that science should have a say in? So I think we can go to 14 days now, but does it mean that we should allow the germline to be tampered with any further on? And is it something science should just step back from because it's a bioethical decision as opposed to a scientific decision? And the reason it's there is because it's, it could be abused, and we know that many things in science, many scientists have abused science in the name of whatever it is. 
Yes, so uh, we are far away from that situation right now because right now we do not have any yet technology developed to go actually beyond day 14 and nobody's trying to go there because it's illegal to go there. So at the moment, uh, we scientists, only for the last year, we can culture embryos to this boundary day 14 and really explore, in my view, this is very important to explore the wealth of the information that comes about the early stages of pregnancy and generation of the new organism that this science now reveals. So you are asking me ahead, you are asking me uh, on the st to go step ahead and ask the question, should we go beyond that day 14? That's a huge um, step forward, and to be able to decide for it, it would not be the scientific decision only. This is now um, uh, a lot of discussion um, uh, between bioethicists, by general contribution from bioethicists, general public, and scientists working all together. It's extremely important to make this decision, and it's far away from uh, being accomplished. Hi, sorry, I had two questions. The first one was, does the Yamaka factors bring the cell back to a stage of totempotency or pluripotency? And then the second one was, how do the Yamaka, if I can't pronounce it, the factors bring the cell back? How does they reverse the mechanisms that made the cells specialise in the first place? So I'm not sure I understood. And, oh, I didn't hear, I think, full question. Uh, number, so question number one is, is something to go back to the totipotency, I didn't mention today totipotency, but yes, this is totipotency is this totally unrestricted cells that an unrestricted state that only egg and two cell stage embryo has. And you've mentioned, uh, what, what would you like me to comment on? So I was wondering if the, I can't pronounce it, the Yamaka, it begins with a Y. There's something factors like their genes that you put in and then it can make them, they like, you want to put a cell and it's rolled down one Yamanaki? Yamanaka? Was okay. it rolled down one trough and then try to make it unspecialized? And yeah. so does it bring it back to the point of pluripotency or totipotency is what I was asking. Yes, yeah, so um, at the moment um, there is no way uh, yet, very good way, to bring cells to the um, pure totipotent state that the, the zygote, the fertilized egg, has. But those factors, which I think you, um, you refer to so-called Yamanaka factors, so they were the factors discovered by, um, by Japanese scientists called Yamanaka. There are, there are four, of, four of them, and SOX2 and DOCT4 are two of those four factors. Indeed, uh, we know that if we provide this, uh, those factors, the cocktail of those four factors, to the differentiated cells, we can reverse those cells to the state of pluripotency, not totipotency. Uh, it's still remarkable that we are able to do it. The efficiency of this process is called reprogramming. It's incredibly low. So many labs, many of my colleagues work on increasing the efficiency of that program, uh, of that reprogramming, um, uh, because of the potential it can bring uh, for substituting or healing the organs that might get uh, destroyed in our life uh, by, for example, accident. Why can't you reprogram it all the way back to totipotency? Why can it only go to pluripotency? Um, largely because we still do not understand exactly what totipotency means. So those, I am, I'm often surprised 
uh, because um, for me it's so obvious that we know much less than we do not know. And whenever I uh, give talks like today, uh, sort of I am reminded that many people, many perhaps you, think that we know so much about the early stages of our life and how cells become totipotent, pluripotent, differentiation, how it happens, how it is regulated. You see, I told you a little bit about it, but there are so many still questions, we have no idea what the answer will be. Um, and that's why we cannot bring those cells, differentiated cells, all the way back to that stage of development yet. There's a question here, yes. You um, said in one of your last slides that um, you needed this knowledge to save the lives of people who would otherwise be born with a congenital abnormality. How do you begin to um, apply that knowledge in, in practice, even with an IVF um, pregnancy, to sort of re-engineer re the embryo? Um, that would otherwise have developed a congenital abnormality, let alone in the majority of spontaneous pregnancies where at that stage the, most women wouldn't even know they were pregnant, let alone be able to screen to um, screen for these abnormal emerging abnormalities, let alone be able to do anything about it. So I think there are two answers to this question uh, that spring to my mind. One is that any treatment of any condition starts with understanding of that condition. And at the moment, we do not have this understanding of how development occurs and how it is regulated and why it goes wrong when it does go wrong at these early stages. So to be able to provide the treatment and ability to save those embryos that are lost or develop abnormalities, we will have to first understand how and when those abnormalities develop. So we are only at that stage of our life right now to provide this understanding. But I can give you an example of how this knowledge can be used already right now. So in IVF clinics, often mothers, parents, have more than one embryo to transfer to the mother-to-be, hoping that this particular embryo or two, which are chosen by doctors, are the one which will be the most successful in developing. But not always, as you know, it is the case. And this is because when we look at the morphology of the embryo, so how embryo look on the fourth, fifth, sixth day of its life, this morphology is not predictive of developmental success. There are some signs that there are these inside cells which will gener generate the future body that are present there, but not many other signs there are. So now if we can culture those blastocyst stage embryos beyond the stage they were able to be surviving outside the body of the mother for longer, we actually can define the criteria of the blastocyst stage-looking embryos that are going to be successful in generating the future organism. Thus far, we were not able to do it. So we can provide much better criteria for pre-selecting which of those embryos that look more or less the same at that stage of life will be the most successful when we put them back into the mother's body. So this is something which we already actively work on, despite that our knowledge is only building as we speak on, that, on this particular phase of our life. I think we have to finish because we're already five minutes beyond the time, but thank you very much.